Hey, what's going on, true crime fans? I'm your host, Heath. And I'm your other host, Daphne. And you're listening to Going West. Today's episode, we cover a very special case, and we actually have an interview at the end of the episode that you guys are really going to want to hear. But before we get into this case, I wanted to give a big shout out to Dee and John and Eugene. Thanks for listening. Also, a huge shout out to Beatrice. (laughs) That's literally my mom. She's our number one fan. Yeah, she's so proud. So very proud. Anyways, y'all, let's get into this case. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow, or find an awesome template. No judgment. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Alyssa Turney. Alyssa Turney. Alyssa Turney. Mike Turney said he and his stepdaughter Alyssa had been arguing the day she went missing. At first, it seemed like a typical fight between a teen and a parent and that she had run away. Days and weeks of anxious waiting turned into years without a word. She wouldn't have taken that risk. She would have taken all of her hard-earned money out and called it a day, but that didn't happen because she didn't run away. Dad! Dad's a pervert. Give me the camera now. Some of Alyssa's friends say that she came to them in tears, and you were on top of her, gagging her. Another time she woke up, she was handcuffed to the bed. Are those things true? Absolutely not. Did you ever do anything sexual with your stepdaughter? No. Why would I do that? They have no proof whatsoever, anything other than rumors in your windows and lies. If they have no proof, that doesn't mean you you didn't do it. There's only two people that can confirm whether I did it or didn't. One is me, and the other is Alyssa. Alyssa's not here, and I'm sitting here. And all I can say till hell freezes over, I didn't do a damn thing to my daughter. Did you kill her? No. Absolutely not. Alyssa Marie Turney was born on April 3rd, 1984 in Phoenix, Arizona. She was last seen on May 17, 2001 at her home in the vicinity of Bell Road and 34th Street in Phoenix. When she was just three years old, her mother, Barbara, married a man named Mike Turney, who had four children of his own. Barbara had two children herself, and the whole family joined together. Now, Alyssa's biological father wasn't at all a part of her life, so Mike basically became her father. Yeah, it's also important to note that in the family, they didn't consider, uh, you know, like step siblings or step parent they were just their sisters and their brothers and their dad you know what i mean yeah that was something that mike mentioned that wasn't allowed in the household basically they weren't allowed to use the word step so no stepsister no stepfather that word just wasn't allowed barbara and mike had a daughter sarah when Alyssa was around the age of seven then when Alyssa was nine years old their mother passed away due to cancer and from then on her stepfather mike raised the children by himself 
When Alyssa was 17, she was living at home with her stepfather, Mike, and her half-sister, Sarah. All her brothers had moved out of the house by this time, leaving just the three of them there. She was like any regular teenager, always hanging out with friends. She was definitely the life of the party. Her friends and her sister, Sarah, remember her as making any situation fun and always making others laugh. Mike was extremely strict when it came to Alyssa. However, with her sister, Sarah, he was the cool dad. Sarah never really had any rules or restrictions. Mike would buy her beer when she got a little bit older, uh, let her do pretty much whatever she wanted, encourage her to skip school, stuff like that. And around 2005, when she was about 17, Mike even let her boyfriend move in with her. But this is stuff that he would never allow Alyssa to do. Yeah, I think Sarah even mentioned that her father would come into her room in the morning and be like, hey, do you want to go to school today? A lot of the time, Sarah would say no. And so he would just let her stay home. And she actually mentioned that she would go to school like two to three times a week at best. Mike monitored Alyssa's every move pretty much. He always had to make sure that she was doing well in school and attending class and that she was going to work. He would even sometimes drive to her job at Jack in the Box and watch her from outside just to make sure that she was there. Um, He cared about who she hung out with, what she did, and was extremely critical and selective about the activities she did, often telling her that he didn't want her smoking weed or drinking. Yeah, I know, like, when I was growing up, you know, obviously my parents, like, monitored my actions as well. They wanted to know if I was in school or if I was, like, skipping class, which a lot of the time I was. But in this certain situation, I mean, he's sitting outside of her work, like, watching her, making sure that she's at work. That's a little bit strange. Yeah, I think as a parent, it definitely makes sense to make sure your children are on the right path, for sure. It was just weird that he did this with Alyssa, but not any of his other children, and that he went to that extra extreme with it. His excuse for being so overprotective with Alyssa was that she was reckless and easily influenced, whereas Sarah wasn't. The thing is, though, Alyssa was responsible. She never missed a shift at work. She had a steady boyfriend. She would get into fights with her sister, as sisters do. She hung out with her friends a lot and listened to alternative and rap music, some of her favorites being Marilyn Manson and Eminem. She also had a sweet side where she loved cute things like gel pins and kids' stationery and Hello Kitty shirts, which was, as most of you know, a very 90s and early 2000s kind of thing. Um, So she was just kind of a normal teenager. So Mike thought that Alyssa had ADHD, and because of this, he thought it would be a good idea to put her in special education classes, despite the fact that she was a fine student and had gotten good report cards. Yeah, and I guess Mike had actually tried to sue the school because the school didn't think that Alyssa had any learning disabilities, and it was believed that Mike did this because he kind of wanted to keep control over Alyssa, And he knew that if she had to ride, like, the short bus, that she would be extremely embarrassed and that her friends wouldn't want to talk to her anymore. Alyssa wanted to move to California. It was a dream of hers to get out of Phoenix and to have a change of pace and scenery. Her aunt happened to live in California, and Alyssa had openly been hoping to stay with her and seemingly start anew, which is something a lot of people wish for. However, she didn't have a set plan with her aunt. It was just a goal of hers to move there whenever she could. In her junior year of high school, just one year from graduation, she even considered dropping out and leaving to California. There was something in Arizona that made her want to get out as soon as possible. 
On May 17, 2001, it was Alyssa's last day of her junior year at Paradise Valley High School in Phoenix. When the final bell rang at school, her sister Sarah, who was around 13 at the time, waited patiently outside for her dad to pick her up. So apparently he often forgot to pick her up from school. This wasn't abnormal to her. So her and her friend began walking to her friend's house, as they would often do in this kind of situation, and she thought nothing of it. All accounts at this point are from Mike and no one else. Mike Turney later stated that he took Alyssa out of school early around 10.30 or 11 a.m. and they went out to lunch. It's unclear why he shortened her school day when she had already had a short day at school. He just took her out of school even earlier than she would have been released. They picked up lunch to go and took it home, then having a discussion about how Alyssa was going to spend her summer break. Apparently, he wasn't too happy with her answers. He said that, quote, she wanted more privileges. Alyssa then stormed angrily into her room. At around 1 p.m., Mike left to pick up a camera lens, run errands, and pick up Sarah. He apparently tried to call Alyssa while he was gone, but she didn't answer the phone. Once Mike had picked up Sarah around 5 p.m., he told her that Alyssa hadn't been answering the phone and asked Sarah to try calling her. Alyssa didn't answer those calls either. So it's also important to note that from the time that Mike picked up Alyssa from school to the time he ran errands and picked up Sarah was about six hours that's unaccounted for. So all we really have is his word. When Mike and Sarah returned to the house at 5 p.m., Alyssa was gone. Her backpack had been dumped across her room and her cell phone lay on the dresser next to a note. And that note said, Dad and Sarah, when you dropped me off at school today, I decided that I really am going to California. Sarah, you said you didn't want me around. Look, you got it. I'm gone. That's why I saved my money. Dad, I took $300 from you. Signed, Alyssa. There's actually a lot of speculation surrounding this letter. So I guess Alyssa would usually sign her name with a big lowercase a, but in this letter, she actually signed it with a capital A. So a lot of people think that it was probably a forced letter, and we'll kind of get into that and why we don't think that she actually ran away like she said in the letter. Now, Sarah didn't really think much of this letter right off the bat. She assumed Alyssa was off with her friends and that she'd run away but would come back. However, Mike was extremely concerned. He was desperate to find her, immediately reporting her missing, printing flyers and putting them all across town, asking everyone in the area if they had seen her, and even obtaining phone records for that day. He then started taking trips to California, apparently doing the same thing, asking people if they'd seen her and passing out flyers. Michael was definitely changed after Alyssa's disappearance. He was in bed a lot more often, and he was just a lot less motivated in general to do anything other than find her. He would sometimes spend up to a week in California and would go incredibly frequently. Sarah went with him a couple times to help on his search as well. According to Mike, seven days after Alyssa went missing, he received a phone call from her. The call woke him up at 5 a.m., and Alyssa was seemingly still incredibly upset about their conversation a week earlier. Just 29 seconds into the call, she told him to leave her alone and then hung up. Extremely distraught, Mike jumped into his car to search all nearby payphones, thinking that she was somewhere in the area. The police later traced the call to a payphone in Riverside, California. The case goes cold. No one hears from or finds Alyssa Turney. There are no leads of where she could be. She never went to her aunt's house in California like she'd been planning for so long. 
She was so determined to leave that she even saved up $1,800 to make the trip, but that money was never touched. She didn't take her cell phone, clothes, makeup, house keys, or any of her belongings. So how could she be a runaway like her family and law enforcement think? And I think the one thing that stands out so much to me, it's not so much her leaving um, her clothes and her makeup, but more so that she left $1,800 and that that bank account was never touched. You would think that she would have withdrawn the money before she actually left. Well, that's one of the biggest reasons that I don't believe that she's a runaway other than the other things that we're going to bring up because she would have had to use money. And even though she did say that she took $300 from Mike, it doesn't make any sense that she would leave that $1,800 untouched. If you're going into the next state and you're going to start a new life, $300 is not enough. Yeah, especially because... You know, she had been gone for a week before Mike had gotten that phone call from her. You would think that she would have, you know, exhausted that $300 within a week easily. Alyssa was very close with her siblings, friends, and steady boyfriend, but she never mentioned any plans of running away, and none of them ever heard from her after she was reported missing. Although she had plans eventually to go to California, these circumstances do not line up with those of a runaway case. As her sister Sarah says, quote, because she didn't run away. In 2006, so roughly five years after Alyssa's disappearance, a Florida man named Thomas Heimer, a self-proclaimed serial killer, confessed to the murder of Alyssa Turney. After already being granted life in prison, Tom said he had killed 21 women across the United States. He identified Alyssa in a photo lineup showed to him by law enforcement as one of his victims. Will Anderson and Stuart Summershoe, two Phoenix detectives, were then assigned to Alyssa's case. So the good news is at this point, she's no longer being treated as a runaway, but now a victim of foul play. Obviously, it's not good news that she's not a runaway and didn't willingly go on her own, but at least now the police are treating her that way because we pretty much know that's what happened to her. Yeah, and now investigators can start to take Alyssa's case more seriously. Well, that's the issue. Is For the first few years of this case, police just thought that she was a runaway, so they kind of just pushed it to the side and didn't really care, which was a huge problem because then that initial evidence is gone. Yeah, and we've actually mentioned this kind of happening with other cases in a few of our earlier episodes that, you know, when police determine somebody a runaway, it's very easy for them to kind of push it to the side and not really take it that seriously. And that happened, you know, a lot throughout the 70s and 80s. Police just chalked it up to a runaway instead of, you know, a serious um, disappearance. Thomas Heimer's story went like this. He was traveling across the United States in May 2001 and stopped at a biker bar in Phoenix, Arizona, where he found a van in the parking lot. He ended up punching and knocking out the owner of the vehicle and stealing his van. Inside the van, he found Alyssa, who was strung out on heroin. Even though he had abducted her, they started a relationship. Apparently, the two ended up in Georgia, where he killed her during sex. He also mentioned that Alyssa, like himself, was very interested in unusual and kinky sex. Tom then chopped up her body and disposed of it in a recycling plant. However, his story really didn't line up at all. Although Tom's confession was very detailed, it really lacked hard evidence. He claimed she was a heroin addict, but none of her family or friends agreed with this. They stated she was never the type of person to have done hard drugs, especially heroin. She just wasn't that type of person. Besides, it's incredibly difficult to hide a heroin addiction from every single person that you know. So this was very suspicious um, on his part. 
Detectives also questioned Alyssa's boyfriend, John, about her sexual preferences since Tom had made such a matter-of-fact statement about her interests. John said absolutely not. She, again, wasn't that type of person. John and Alyssa's sex was very normal, and I think out of anyone, he would be the one to know that. After police continued to dig into this confession, they realized that nothing Thomas said had checked out. Thomas was eventually given a polygraph, which he failed miserably. Apparently, Tom had just clipped Alyssa's photograph from an advertisement in USA Today that talked about the details of her disappearance, so his confession was completely fabricated, which he admitted. Interestingly enough, Tom had also claimed to have killed J.C. Dugard, who most of you have probably heard of. For those of you who haven't, J.C. Dugard was kidnapped and held hostage from the age of 11 in 1991 until the age of 29 in 2009. So as time shows, Tom was in fact not her captor, and he didn't kill her like he said he did, because we know it was Philip Garrido, who held her hostage and she is still alive today. So Thomas clearly lied about a lot. During the detective's search into Alyssa's case in 2008, they began discovering troubling things about her home life. The focus really began to change from her being a runaway to someone purposefully making her disappear. The story of her running away willfully started to fall apart because none of the facts really supported it at all. Considering years had passed since her disappearance, detectives basically had to start from scratch, but unfortunately most of the evidence that could have initially been collected was gone. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you are allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medications that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, just visit Juvederm.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volix XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment, no maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volix XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, 
temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. With how busy our schedules are, Heath and I are constantly ordering food and groceries from DoorDash. It just saves us a ton of time when we can't run to the store for ingredients or don't feel like cooking and want delicious takeout instead. But delivery fees can definitely add up. And this is why we have Dash Pass by DoorDash. Dash Pass is an exclusive membership from DoorDash that gets you unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, as well as member-only deals and discounts. Which is why Dash Pass is the most affordable way to get anything and everything you need delivered right to your door, and fast, for just $9.99 a month. Which means DoorDash quickly pays for itself in just two orders on average. So whether you order every day or just a couple of times a month, you'll save with Dash Pass. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for Dash Pass today only on DoorDash and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. We know you guys love a good mystery, especially one with twists and turns. Am I right? This is why you guys are going to love June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker while she tries to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder in the roaring 1920s. In this hidden object mystery game, put your detective skills to the test. While you're on this quest to uncover a scandalous hidden family secret, you can customize your very own luxurious estate island and let your imagination run wild. Daphne and I actually love to play this game together because you can chat with and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. It is truly so much fun. You guys are going to love it. So what do you think? Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Anderson and Summershoe obtained a search warrant for Mike Turney's house, although he had since moved to a house across the street, so they actually obtained warrants for both his old house, where Alyssa disappeared from, and his new house. Police were looking for any kind of evidence that could help them figure out where Alyssa went, but what they found was much more than they expected. In Mike's house, there were 19 high-caliber assault rifles, 26 homemade pipe bombs, two silencers, three explosive devices, and numerous other weapons. It was the largest stockpile of explosives discovered in Phoenix Police Department history. To safely and securely remove each bomb, more than 100 neighbors were temporarily evacuated from their homes, and Mike was taken into custody. At the time, Mike was carrying two handguns, a recording device, seven magazines of ammunition, and a knife when he was arrested. And it's important to note that Mike was actually just going out to his mailbox to check his mail, and he was completely strapped to the teeth. And investigators or police decided not to enter his house and arrest him, so I'm kind of curious what would have happened if they actually went into his house I mean, would Mike have gone out guns blazing or what would have happened in that situation? That was such a crazy thing to learn. Like, why did he have so many weapons on his person when he was just hanging out at the house and going to check the mail? Like, did he always carry this many weapons on him? And if so, why? Yeah, I don't know anybody that would have that many weapons on them at one time. I mean, you're not fucking Rambo. You don't need you know, a bunch of knives and guns on your person at all times, unless you're an extremely paranoid person. 
Apparently, Mike had been planning on causing some sort of terrorist attack on the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, who he claimed wronged him in the 70s. He even wrote a 98-page manifesto titled "Diary of a Madman Martyr," which detailed his plan of attack. His reasoning for wanting to kill these men was that apparently two of those men in the union were responsible for killing Alyssa, and that he had already killed those two men himself. Michael stated that Alyssa was buried in Desert Center, California. When investigators checked the story out, apparently those two men had died before Alyssa went missing. One died of cancer, and the other killed himself. Now, in his manifesto, he also stated that he needed to kill at least a hundred of those union workers. His plan was to fill up his van with flammable and explosive material, set a rock on the gas pedal, and let the van self-drive through the gates of the Union and explode on impact. He then planned to use high-powered rifles to shoot through the doors and kill anyone else who was inside. Mike Turney was then arrested for unlawful possession of unregistered destructive devices, and he pleads guilty during his trial in April 2010. So, because this was a felony charge, he was sentenced to ten years in a federal prison, which was the maximum sentence for this crime. He was released in March 2017 and now resides in Phoenix, Arizona, once again. Along with all the explosives, detectives discovered a snuff film in Mike's house. The video included a naked woman tied to a chair being brutally murdered, and the murder portion of the film was looped on repeat. So back in 2008, when this occurred, and as detectives began interviewing more people, they were alarmed by what they found. Many of Alyssa's friends and even her boyfriend stated that Mike Turney kept surveillance in the house and recorded all calls going in and out. Mike kept all of the recordings and surveillance tapes, often even spying on Alyssa and her boyfriend while they were in the house. And by the way, there was actually a camera hidden in the heater vent pointed towards the couch. So when Alyssa was with her boyfriend and they were doing what boyfriends and girlfriends do on the couch, that was all being filmed. Sarah had mentioned that she knew about the cameras outside of the house,、uh, but not the camera in the living room vent. She didn't find out about that for a while. So Mike had, of course, claimed that he had this for security reasons, which does make sense. But his other actions following were extremely shady. Exactly, and at one point, Michael even told Alyssa's boyfriend John that she was cheating on him, so that they would break up. Because of this, Alyssa and John got into a huge argument, which was all recorded on home surveillance. It's thought that Michael was jealous of their relationship and didn't want her dating anyone. However, John and Alyssa stayed together. Most disturbingly, detectives received information that Alyssa had been sexually abused by Mike since childhood. Apparently, when Alyssa was nine years old, she admitted to her teacher that she had had sex. Her teacher thought she meant kissing, but then Alyssa said that she had sex with her stepdad. Apparently, about 25 people, both friends and family, had come forward saying that Alyssa had told them about Mike sexually abusing her. She even told some of them that he gagged and handcuffed her. By now, if you couldn't figure out what type of person Mike was, well, now you know. The year before her disappearance, Mike Turney had called Child Protective Services, stating that if Alyssa had ever called filing a child molestation complaint against him, that she was lying. Later in an interview, Michael stated that if Alyssa had been sexually abused, she could have just called Child Protective Services, but she didn't because she wasn't abused. The interviewer then mentioned, "Well, you told them not to believe her anyway, so why would she?" At some point, Michael had Alyssa sign contracts stating that she was never sexually abused by him. He said that he had taken psychology courses and learned that signing contracts with your children was a good parenting method. However, he didn't do that with any of his other children besides Alyssa. 
And why would you have your child sign a contract saying that you didn't sexually abuse them if you weren't guilty of sexually abusing them? It's so sketchy. Alyssa's brother told an interviewer on Alyssa's episode of 2020 that Alyssa told him that one time Michael took her out to the desert and tried to fool around with her, but she pushed him away and didn't give in to his advances. Another disturbing find was that in the mid-90s, so before Alyssa went missing, Alyssa and Sarah's cousin came to stay at their house. He had just gotten off a work shift late one night and decided to watch a movie. He popped in the Dr. Doolittle VHS that was in the attorney's living room and found something incredibly disturbing. Recorded over the movie was a home video of two young girls naked from the waist up wearing newspapers over their faces sitting on Michael's living room couch. Mike is believed to have been recording this video. It's also believed that the video was of Alyssa and her friend, but no friend has ever come forward admitting that she was in this video. And this cousin had apparently been staying with attorneys for about six months. And after he had seen this video, he left pretty quickly, I think within like a few days. So when police figured out that Michael had kept surveillance tapes, they wondered why he never turned them up when Alyssa initially went missing. When detectives asked for the tapes from May 17, 2001, Michael said that he had already reviewed them and that there was nothing of interest shown. Detective Anderson stated, quote, even if you think it shows nothing criminal, it shows me what she's wearing. It shows me how her hair was styled. It shows her walking out of the home, which would direct my attention somewhere other than that home. His opinion of nothing is different than my opinion of nothing. I want that tape. Now that they know Michael had recorded phone calls as well, they also asked him about the call that Alyssa apparently made from a Riverside, California payphone a week after her disappearance. Michael stated that he didn't think the call was important, which is why he never showed it to police and that he actually had recorded over that tape. And that is just so shocking to hear that these are two things that he didn't show the police initially and that he didn't think were important where a phone call and the video of her walking out of the house is the only evidence that would have been available. So why would that not be important? Well, we know that Mike had a background as being a sheriff's deputy. So if he did cover up those tapes or he disposed of them, it's pretty clever on his part if he was involved in this crime. Mike also refused to take a polygraph or sit down for an interview with police. He only communicated with them through fax, email, and phone. At this point, Mike Turney is a major suspect in Alyssa's case, but with no body, there is no crime. And again, Mike was a police officer in the 70s and 80s, so he would know how to commit a murder and definitely know how to dispose of a body. The two main places people figure her body is are Desert Center, California, and a local shopping plaza that was being built at the time she disappeared. Now, like we mentioned earlier, Desert Center, California, is where Mike stated to police that the union workers who supposedly killed her had put her remains. It's important to note that Desert Center, California, is three hours away from Phoenix. The one thing about this that confuses me is if Mike did, in fact, kill Alyssa, why would he give up, oh, her remains are in Desert Center, California? So I, that's why I don't really believe that they're there, because he said that. I mean, it's possible that he could have dumped her remains there on one of his many trips to California since it's on the way, but I just don't really see how that's true. But then again, where did he just randomly pull Desert California from? 
And there's some reason to believe that Sarah's uncle James was actually involved in disposing of Alyssa's body since he owned a recycling plant up north, um, which we're going to get into here in just a second. Alyssa and Sarah's aunt says that she was unaware that Alyssa had plans to come to California at the time of her disappearance because they didn't have a solid plan. She was also unaware of the abuse, but she believes that Mike killed Alyssa. When Alyssa Turney's case was featured on 2020, Sarah Turney didn't believe that her father was guilty of the crime. It wasn't until after that she started believing in his guilt and is now a major advocate for his conviction. Here's Heath's interview with Sarah Turney. Can you explain to us the differences you saw pertaining to the treatment of yourself and Alyssa by your father growing up? Yeah, um, and of course, it, it's kind of two different perspectives, one from when I was a kid and, and one now, um, which is so different. Um, but when I was growing up, I was really envious of Alyssa. I thought that she got a lot of attention. I wanted that attention. I wanted um, all my dad's attention. So I was really jealous. I didn't understand why he spent so much time on her. Um, and she was kind of the opposite. She didn't understand why I was left alone and given so much freedom. Um I think, you know, what's most glaringly obvious is when we were both 17, if, if you look at that, um, she would have monitored every second of every day. I mean, he would go to her work to check on her. He had a camera in the vent. When I was 17, my boyfriend moved in with us. Um, he would buy us beer. I was allowed to do whatever I wanted. What was the biggest factor that changed your mind concerning your father's innocence? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, the, the 2020 episode definitely factored in. Um, but it's not as if right when I saw it, I immediately changed my mind. It, it took some time. Um, so I think it was a combination of learning new facts from the ABC show. You know, we found out that she was taken out of school early that day. I also found out that my brother had told the police that she came to him and said that my father was sexually molesting her. Um, so at first I was kind of outraged and thought that he was betraying the family and how could this be true? And all those feelings, um, but then slowly but surely and reading comments and hearing more about it and understanding more of the story and what was going on, um, it became really obvious. Yeah, that must have been a really tough realization. So at any point, did you have any suspicion that your father was sexually abusing Alyssa? No, never. I mean, and that's what makes it so confusing is I knew they fought, they yelled at each other all the time, they screamed. Um, but no, never anything that serious. I didn't think it went that far. We know that you had a cousin come stay with you guys in the mid-90s and had seen some evidence of Alyssa's molestation. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, so our cousin, David Garman, lived with us for, I mean, goodness, maybe six months. I can't quite remember, but it wasn't a very long time. Um, and then he suddenly was gone, which didn't seem abnormal to me, but um, yeah, he approached the Missing Alyssa podcast and said that he had something he wanted to speak about. And he said that um, when he was living with us, that one night he came home from work and he put a um, VHS in the player and it said Dr. Doolittle. Um, my father had like always recorded things from TVs. We had bookcases and bookcases full of VHSs. We just had tons of movies. Um, so he picked out one he wanted to watch and instead of Dr. Doolittle, he says that it was um, Alyssa. And an unknown friend, they were naked from the waist up, sitting on our couch um, with newspapers covering their faces, and that he could tell that the camera was, I believe, on a tripod, um, and that my father was there. Um, but yeah, he says that he definitely knew it was Alyssa, and that he recognized the friend, but couldn't remember her name. 
Um, but I don't know. No friend has ever come forward. I would love to know if this is true or not. I have not found the VHS labeled Dr. Doolittle, um, but that would have been taken by the police. So how did David know that it was Mike behind the camera, other than the fact that it was in his living room? I forget exactly what he says, but he says that he knew that it was my father. Um, So I'm not sure. I mean, how you know from behind the camera would have to be his voice. So when you were living with your dad, did you witness the stockpile of guns and pipe bombs kind of just laying around the house? Um, So no, I didn't know that there were any bombs or anything like that in the house. I knew that he had guns, but honestly, even today, I couldn't tell you what a legal gun versus an illegal gun looks like. Um, Because I know a lot of it came down to, like, homemade silencers and, like, modifications on them. Um, But, yeah, I knew that he had a ton of guns. I just didn't know that they were apparently illegal or, like, high caliber. You know, he was always at gun shows. He was always getting different things delivered to the house. Um, My whole life, him and my brothers had shot guns. It was just something I was never into, being, you know, at a certain point, the only girl in the family. Um, They would go off and do it alone. But yeah, I mean, guns were always a part of our lives. Um, When I turned 18, I got a gun. It's kind of like the rite of passage in the house. Um, The police took that gun also. But um, yeah, of course, I had no idea about the bombs. We know that you have a petition going around, which we'll link to our website, trying to get your father to go to trial for the disappearance of Alyssa. How close are you to receiving your goal amount of signatures? Um, so if you look at the petition, it's a creeping goal, but the overall goal is 500000 um, which I actually just went on social media and said that we should make it a million. But it's hard with the petition. I don't know how effective it is. I just think it's more of a talking point for us to have that behind us. I don't know that they're going to take it super seriously. I had a meeting with the police and I said, listen, I have 90,000 signatures. What's it going to take? Do I need 750000 Do I need a million? And they said, we don't really care how many signatures you have. They don't care about social advocacy like that, you know, and I thought they might, um, but it's becoming more and more apparent that if it's not huge, they don't care. So even 90,000 is nothing to them, which is why I think if we got to like a million, it might actually make them think about it. Yeah, we definitely hope that we can help in some way with that because it's the most important. So do you think that your father's background as a deputy sheriff could have led him to believe that he was capable of getting away with murder? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that definitely fuels his ego and um, makes him think that he can do whatever he wants. I think that he knows the ins and outs of police work. And granted, he might. I don't know. Um, But yeah, I think that gave him a lot of arrogance. I mean, he certainly reported her missing in such a way he knew that it wouldn't evoke any type of search. He said, you know, I have a missing daughter, but listen, I know she's in California. She's with her aunt. I just wanted to let you know. So we mentioned Thomas Heimer earlier in the episode, and even though his statements weren't true, do you feel fortunate that his statements pushed investigators to re-examine Alyssa's case? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm very thankful for Thomas Heimer, as disgusting and backwards as that might sound. Um, Absolutely. If it wasn't for him and his false confession, I don't think this would have ever been reopened. We know that your dad claimed that he was controlling over Alyssa because he felt that she needed extra guidance, but we also find out that he's kind of contradicting himself. Did you witness any of the name-calling or verbal abuse? So it's hard because I can't remember specific instances, but if you look in that pervert video, I was right there, and he called her a stupid moron. And here's audio from the video that Sarah's referring to. It was taken in 1997 when Alyssa was just 13 years old, so four years before she went missing. Hit the red button. Sarah! On the cookie! Sarah! Sarah! 
camera now. And you're still recording. And Lissa is stupid moron. And that was extremely disturbing. Heath and I are major sufferers of seasonal allergies. They are the worst. It can even be difficult to host this show when our noses are all clogged up. We have tried brand after brand, but luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. And big shout out to Claritin for supporting this show and providing us with samples. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. I feel like I sneeze all day long. I always have an itchy face, but now I can actually go outside in the grass and not have a sneeze attack or be stuffed up thanks to Claritin D. Are you ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so that you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. What sticks in my head growing up is him telling me to not tell her she's stupid. Like, that is something that actually happened. It was drilled into me that, like, I was not allowed to call her stupid. Um, but I'm sure it happened all the time. I just can't remember specific instances. And you've stated clearly that you believe your father was responsible for the disappearance of Alyssa. But do you think that anybody else may have been involved? Um, it's possible. So there's there's two uncles that um, I think could have helped either kill her or help dispose of the body. Um, but the police won't really look into that, so that's pretty tricky. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think if my father was stuck in a situation where he needed to dispose of a body and he needed help, I don't see why he wouldn't go to these people. Um, there's also a really seated, dark history with my father and his brother, my Uncle James. Um, and, you know, his kids, my Uncle James's kids, come out and say that they're more afraid of my Uncle James than they are of my father. Yeah, and can you tell us a little bit about the story where your uncle had shot your aunt and your father may have helped cover up that situation? Yeah, um, so this is a story I grew up with my whole life. Uh, my cousins speak about it openly now to the media. But essentially, um, sometime in the 1970s, while my father was a police officer, um, his brother shot his wife. My father was there. He was trying to get the kids out of the house. He came in while his brother was shooting his wife. And um, Detective Summershoe has come out and made a statement stating that um, he knows that my father tampered with evidence. I mean, it, it's hard to say. And she never pressed charges because she was deathly afraid that they were going to come back and kill her. So we know that Mike claims he got a phone call from Alyssa a week after her disappearance. Do you think that it's possible that he arranged to have this phone call made? Yeah. So he was physically there and picked up the phone call. We have these these um, phone records from the phone company. So this phone call did actually happen. Someone in our home picked up at five or whatever it was in the morning. 
So I think that most likely he hired someone to do that for him or knew a friend or gave someone a couple bucks to give him a call at this time from the payphone. I mean, I think in Phoenix, at least, I could probably go to at least, I mean, if I go to two gas stations, I bet I could find somebody that would do that for me. It's, it's not difficult. I don't think it was her. Yeah, and if she had run away, I think she would have probably taken that $1,800 with her. Oh, yeah. Well, she would have taken it before she left. I don't think that she would have taken the chance because, you know, as a 17-year-old, your parent is still the main person on your account. So he could have gone down at any time and withdrew all the money. So I, I think if she had run away, she wouldn't have taken that risk. She would have taken all of her hard-earned money out and called it a day. But that didn't happen because she didn't run away. I want to examine this note that Alyssa left. Do you think that Alyssa wrote the first part of the note, but then your father forged the second half? I don't think he forged it. I think he made her write it. I think he found the note, got pissed, said, what the hell is this? Okay, you want to run away? Fine, you're going to be gone. Write this. Do you think that your father felt he was going to lose control over Alyssa by her going to your aunt's house in California? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there was an ongoing battle between my aunts and my father my whole life. Um, And and it's hard to say because they did some not-so-great things and he did some not-so-great things. Um, But I think when it comes down to it, I think he was really afraid that she was going to go somewhere that was far enough away for her to feel safe and with someone she felt comfortable enough to tell the truth. And that someone he knew would definitely speak up. And speaking about these sexual allegations, can you talk a little bit about the people who Alyssa had confided in? Yes, I would love to, because even in my most recent meeting with the police, um, the point person on the case said, what sexual abuse allegations are you talking about? Um, And I had to point out that they had over 12 people. I mean, I have a posted of it somewhere, and I think it's closer to 25. But to be safe, I'm always like over a dozen people in your documents have alleged Alyssa came to them and said these things. And like you said, it was a teacher. It was friends. It was family. I mean, she told everyone and nobody helped. And it's so sad to think that she was failed in so many ways. There were so many people that knew and just nothing came of it. And even now, the police, you know, told me, well, Alyssa's not here. What are we supposed to do? So about Alyssa's potential remains, I know that you had talked before that she may have been buried underneath an outside shopping mall or Desert Center, California. Can you tell me why these might be plausible scenarios? So there's a shopping mall that's about, I mean, maybe five miles from our home, very, very quick. Um, We used to ride our go-karts up there. So it was somewhere we went as a family. And then it later was being turned into a shopping mall the summer that she went missing. Um, Because I remember it was the end of seventh grade and then by eighth grade the mall was open and ready to go and it was like you know the hot spot for the kids to walk to so I spent so much time at the shopping mall but it was so close convenient there would have been holes my father was familiar with construction he did electric electrical work um so I think he would have known like how easy is it to throw her in an already dug hole that a target's going to go on top of so we reached out to the shopping center and I was like this is not a joke um you know, I would love to see your construction schedule. Um, so I'm trying to get that from them to see, like, if there were holes on May 17, 2001, or what that looked like to see if it's even a feasible place to look for a body. Um, but I just don't think you could have gotten that far. I mean, the timeline is hard to narrow down um, because I can't quite remember when he picked me up that night. But 
it couldn't have been more than six hours. And I don't see him risking driving to California across a border in which you were often stopped to go hide this body. It doesn't make any sense when he was so familiar with the desert and that place was so close. And even up north, he had access to a recycling plant that our uncle owned and he had access to his brother's home that was known for helping him. They both helped each other cover up crimes in the past. So I think that he had a lot more options closer by. Have investigators even checked any of these places out? No, they refused to. I gave them a map a few years back that had all these super specific coordinates circled. It was just this map of the desert. And I was young and foolish and I was scared. And it was just a few years after everything had happened. And I said, I don't, I, I think I was still in the transition of, do I believe my dad or do I not? And I found the map and I just said, I don't want this and gave it to the police. Um, and my, my boyfriend at the time had actually Googled these coordinates and they were all just like in the middle of the desert. Um, but nothing came of that. They never looked. They never gave me an answer. Um, and now I'm pretty sure that map doesn't exist according to them any longer. So I know that you had met with your father sometime in 2017. I'm just curious um, how the conversation went. I mean, what did you say to him and what questions were asked? So it was October 2017. Um, I called him and I said, I want to meet with you. And we met at a Starbucks and I recorded him and he was excited that I wanted to be back in his life. And I said, no, this is not what this is about. Um, I, I told him quite frankly, I said, listen, you're 70 years old and I want to ask you questions face to face outside of a phone line that's being recorded through the prison or outside of the prison room where we have a t- bunch of security guards looking at us. Like I want to know. And I asked him everything and he was horrible and he talked terribly about Alyssa and he tried to intimidate me and he said some really disgusting things, including, um, you know, he said, darling, come to my best bed, my deathbed, and I'll give you all the honest answers you want to hear. And then he said that he would also confess if the state gave him lethal injection within 10 days. And, of course, I'm excited after this, and I go to the police, and I give them the recording, and they say, not good enough. It's so frustrating that these police officers just don't get it. Oh, yeah. I mean, but the thing is, they do get it, and they're the ones that knew before I did. They sat me down the day that the house was raided. And so they called me, you know, because I'm the point person on the case at this point. I've been the the point person, the family contact since I was 17 years old. And they called and they said, "Um, listen, we have some news about your sister. Can you come down to the station? And I think my exact words were, I have a Spanish test. Will I be back in time? And I said, yeah, yeah, no problem. Come on down. And I came down. I waited about 30 minutes. Me and my boyfriend were there. And they called me back. And they said, listen, we don't have any news about your sister. We're raiding your home. Um, we know that your father killed Alyssa. He also sexually molested her. You also have a sister you don't know about. How do you feel about your father now? And my exact words were, am I free to go? I need to call my brothers, um, to which I did. And um, for months and years after that, they sent me documents and emails trying to convince me, have you heard from your father? Have you seen, You should read this full interview from ABC 2020. He says some pretty shocking things. You should check it out. I mean, just years and years and years of trying to convince me that he did this. And then I finally come back and I say, listen, I get it. My mind has changed. I think he did it too. How can I help? And they say, great. You know, try to talk to him. Have you talked to him? Have you talked to him? Um, and then they say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to wait until he gets out. So that way, um, we're going to wait. When he gets out, we're going to prosecute him. So that way he can't combine his bomb sentence with the murder sentence, 
we don't want him to do any less time than he has to. I say, great. A um, few days before he was released from prison, I get an email saying that the cold case unit for um, the Phoenix Police Department has been dissolved, that the two detectives on my case were no longer assigned to the case, um, and I kind of wait, and nothing happens, and he's not arrested, and I request a meeting, and that's when they sit me down and say, we're not going to prosecute, we're not going to look for a body. Um, good luck, get media. We are going to give you a silent witness campaign. You'll have a billboard on every freeway in Phoenix. And that never happened. I'm in a position right now where I either have to make this like a making a murderer type of profile in the media, or I have to go physically find my sister's body. Like these are the only two things that are going to get them to do what they said they were going to do a very long time ago. So I just have one last question for you, Sarah. If you could relay one message to our listeners, what message would that be? That I need help. I can't do this alone. Um, We're not setting a precedent. There have been many no-body cases in Maricopa County tried and won with less evidence. There's no reason that this case shouldn't be treated the same. So I need help in telling the police that they need to follow through on what they know happened. Because I don't understand what they're hiding or what they don't want to come to light, but for some reason, other cases with less evidence have gone through and they're just deciding to not let this one go through. And so I will fight and kick and scream until the day I die to make that happen. Although Mike Turney, and no others for that matter, have been convicted for Alyssa's murder, this does not mean that she was just a runaway. At this point in 2019, it's been nearly 18 years since she disappeared. She would be celebrating her 35th birthday this year. If she had run away, why wouldn't she have contacted any single person in her family or her friend group to let them know she's safe? How would no one have reported seeing her any time over all these years? It's simple. Alyssa Turney did not run away. Phoenix police refuse to search for Alyssa or figure out what happened to her unless her body is discovered. Sarah, Alyssa's sister, has been passionately trying to convict her father of Alyssa's murder for years and even has a petition. Please visit justiceforalyssa.com to learn more about how you can help. If you're interested in learning more details about the case, check out the amazing podcast, Missing Alyssa, hosted by Octavia Sapala. Let's bring justice for Alyssa. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to today's episode of Going West. Yeah, this was a really special case to cover. And thank you so much to Sarah Turney for giving this you know, amazing interview. Please share this episode with friends and family because not only does it help our podcast, but it most importantly helps Alyssa Turney's case and helps Sarah get justice for her sister. Yeah, and definitely don't forget to check out the podcast Missing Alyssa if you want some extreme details on the case. We have some photos of Alyssa and some details of the case on our Instagram and on our website. So check that out at Going West Podcast. And then our website is goingwestpodcast.com. And don't you dare forget that your boy's out there on Twitter. Find me at Going West Pod. Please tune in next week for episode nine for a brand new case. So everybody out there in the world, keep it real and stay weird. Cheerio.